Hi, I am Jason McCampbell. I am the chief architect at Wallaroo, and I start my morning with a cup of coffee every day, a little bit of cream or a little bit of uh, maybe coconut milk, almond milk in it. Welcome back to another MLOps Community Podcast. I'm Demetrios, your host, and today I'm joined by none other than Abby. What's going on, Abby? Fantastic. And not any meetings today, but tomorrow is like back-to-back meetings. But I'm, I'm glad we got this conversation today because I will take a few minutes to wrap my head around everything that we sort of learned or it was so cool. got a very different perspective on. Oh, so true. I am going to go into this with the disclaimer that I am a complete and utter noob when it comes to deploying machine learning on the edge or doing any kind of ops, doing anything on the edge. We'll just say that I knew very little about it and Jason schooled us so hard. It was so cool to listen to some of these challenges that you have to think about when you are deploying machine learning at the edge. And I want to hear your key takeaways first, and then I'll give you what I thought were my highlights. What does an edge device really mean? For me, it was always Arduinos and, you know, the lower level devices, also more so because of being a part of like the RISC-V community. And most of the discussions over there are with compilers. Him to be able to break it down for us and talk about the economics of operations of like, how do you take the data in one place and how do you reduce the deployment cost by should we go in XYZ city? And if so, what would be the cost of managing a team over there? That was so fascinating for me because that's a perspective we never heard before. I was very new to this kind of conversation, these kind of challenges as well. Oh my God. The deployment cost was a huge run for me too. And especially when you talked about the different vectors that you need to keep in mind, how much data are you taking in? How fast does it need to be? And it made me realize how much we take for granted when we are doing anything with a cloud and the standard way that we're doing machine learning for most people is that and there is just so much that you do not need to think about whether that is or like you were saying how heavy is the model that you're putting out there what kind of security are you looking at and all of this that just brings out so many more vulnerabilities and speaking of security i loved when he got into the different ways that you can have problems when deploying on the edge when it comes to security and just basically sending data around and making sure that are you doing it federated are you just keeping it everything on there or i I liked what he what did he say it was like are you creating a one-way street so that there's only one place one device that all of the uh, data can go to and you have everything else firewalled i was really appreciative of how he just broke all of that down. And then the other piece that I loved, and we both mentioned this after we hit end recording, was around how we never thought of doing anything on the edge as more than just having a few Andrino devices and playing around like toys, maybe making some 
robots and pretending like we work for Boston Dynamics. But this really, like, this is some crazy stuff that he was talking about when it comes to 5G and the towers and just like the constraints that you have to think about are so much different and the challenges are really exciting. And so hopefully everybody enjoys this. It's something that was super new and different for me. I imagine for those who play in this and live their day-to-day with doing AI on the edge or ML on the edge or just ML ops on the edge, whatever you want to call it, whatever your flavor of naming convention you'd like, uh, it's probably not going to be the most in-depth. Jason is incredible. He was able to go super in-depth with while still keeping it very, very understandable for us that know very little about it. And I think that everybody's going to get something out of it unless you are working day in and day out on this, then you may or may not know this kind of stuff. And there are a lot of people in the community who talk about federated learning. But this would be the first time, at least for a lot of people who work as data scientists, to be able to think about how to or what kind of application does federated learning actually have in machine learning. And for any sort of MLOps engineers, to be thinking about the new challenges as well and the entire scope of the field, what level can we go to, how much can we break down the problems and stuff. So it will give everybody, I think, a very different perspective as well. So I will encourage everyone, if you are out there and you like this and you enjoy the MLOps at the edge, we have a whole channel in our MLOps community Slack dedicated to this. It has been a little bit inactive for the last six months. So go in there, give it a little love, see if everybody's still about and say hi. Maybe you can spark up a little bit more interest and conversation engagement around that. And before we jump to the full conversation, I wanted to mention that Wallaroo was kind enough to sponsor us for this episode. And I've got all kinds of cool call to actions for you from them. They have a free community edition that we are going to leave a link to in the description. And they also have a simulated Edge AI tutorial. So if you want to go deeper into this and you like what you're hearing, go check that out. And huge thanks to Wallaroo. Go, if you're doing stuff at the Edge, like you might as well check them out because they are on it. Jason, I feel in very good hands if Jason is taking care of me and he's the architect behind the Wallaroo platforms. So let's jump into this conversation. Like and subscribe and all that fun stuff and leave us a review. Mr. Jason, I want to know about your background because you came from the semiconductor world, not exactly ML world, but I know there are a few parallels. Can you give us a bit of an idea how you broke into this field. <laughs> well, so back when I was in school, well, all right, so I guess I'm dating myself here. <laughs> when I took AI in school, that was optimization algorithms, that was brute force search, it was rule-based systems. There, there was no deep learning. Uh, neural nets were these tiny little toy things. And it was very unsatisfying. Um, those techniques work really well if you can build a mathematical model of something. 
So if you're talking about navigating from point A to point B, I can make a mathematical model that says I'm optimizing for distance or for uh, travel time or energy usage. But I, you know, a mathematical model of this is a cat or this is the word hello. So I was dissatisfied. I was, you know, let down. But I've always liked automating things and I liked electronics. So I went into semiconductor design and it turns out those AI techniques work really well because you can take a collection of transistors and say, well, here's a mathematical description of it. It's an AND gate or it's an OR gate. And here's the timing properties and so on. So that's great. We can synthesize a billion gates into a chip and we can run all these nice algorithms on it. But I've always wanted to keep one foot in that. I've always been attracted by it. So I followed the industry and I had an itch to get back to startups. And when the Wallaroo opportunity came along, um, man, I, I jumped at it. And from that standpoint, it's all high-performance computing. It's how do you take an algorithm, whether it's an ML model or um, you know a semiconductor optimization algorithm, how do you run it on a lot of data using as little hardware as you can or maximize the hardware? So, you know, there are parallels there, but uh, it's been sort of a... A roundabout trip. <laughs> Interesting. And how did you go about, you know, building this expertise and combining Edge and ML together? Or were there some of the common themes and some of the common challenges between each? So, I guess Edge has always been fascinating to me. Like even as a kid, I always wanted to have a computer where I could talk to it and answer questions. And my kids, you know, they're used to having voice assistants around. They can ask the weather. That was complete sci-fi when I was a kid. Or having a robot clean the floor, stuff like that. So that's all sort of the fun edge types of things. And then we had, we've had clients that have come to us and said, okay, this is great. We're deploying models hey, but we also have to deploy over here. Can you help us deploy there? And it was one of those, I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. Yeah, let, uh, let's talk. That, look, tell me more about it. What are you deploying yeah. on? And it, there's such a huge range. It, it's really fascinating. Interesting. Um, that, that brings me to the next question, which is what do you consider edge if you say, you know, there are so many devices out there. How do you <laughs> define it? So that, yeah, that's a good question. That's a huge range and it depends on who you're talking to. Um, I, I've had the privilege of talking to people that are doing everything from microcontrollers where you have, you know, one, two, a couple megabytes of memory on them up to more desktop class processors, ARM or x86 to, to small Kubernetes clusters where you have GPUs and you're processing a lot of video footage to even... Well, we're deploying in a data center, but the data center is halfway around the world and we don't have the normal access to it. So to be able to set the stage, microcontrollers require a whole different set of tooling than cloud deployments and the rest. So, you know, that's tiny ML domain. And I tend not to, to get down to that level. Usually what I look at is say Raspberry Pi class devices, you know, a couple hundred megabytes, gigabyte of memory, up to clusters of CPU servers. 
say, if you have um, a retail outlet and you're trying to capture metrics on the number of people in the checkout queue, you may have a couple of servers in the back room with GPU cards monitoring the cameras. Um, uh, all the way up yeah. to, hey, I need to deploy these models in China, in Asia, in Africa, in Europe. And on top of that, I can't bring the data back because it's personal information or it's IP protected or something like that. So you end up having an edge location that's a Tencent cluster in China. But legislation in the government rules say that's personal information. It can't leave this jurisdiction. So then you end up segmenting your, your network and your deployments around the world. Even if it's a data center, it still ends up looking like an edge deployment. Oh, wow. So this reminds me of back in the day when I used to be in sales and I talked to a guy who was working for a health company and he was asking us if our tool back in that day was dot science the now defunct dot science rip that company and he was asking you know we are all over the globe and one of the things that i'm having a particularly hard time with when it comes to our data platform is that data from canada cannot leave canada so if we have some data scientists <sighs> who are trying to create a model a machine learning model, but they're based in the UK, they cannot touch any of the Canadian data. And I imagine that's what you're saying when it, you talk about like uh, Tencent Cloud being considered edge? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. If you're talking about health information, if you're talking about personally identifiable information, um, it, you know, it could even be for a website or a game type of experience. But if you get down into some of these details about a person, you either you can't send it out of the jurisdiction or you just don't even want to go through the legal headaches of what data can I transport? So what's in Canada stays in Canada, what's in China stays in China, and you do all the processing there. Um, but then one of the real interesting bits is, so how do you know if your model is working well? How do you monitor it without being able to bring the data back? Uh-huh. Well, this is, yeah, this is something fascinating because I would just consider that like there's a specific unit or part of the company that works on that and they are privy to that information. I wouldn't consider it like an edge deployment where it's almost like when I think about edge, I think about being a little bit removed as opposed to being inside and being able to work from it, from anything that you need when you're in Canada and you can launch and you can do everything inside of Canada, as opposed to doing it remotely from the UK or somewhere else. But I am going to preface this with, I honestly have no experience with edge computing or how the the laws work around this personal identifiable information. And so I'm excited for you to enlighten me real fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that is certainly a way you could do it. If you, if the number of companies or countries rather, or jurisdictions is small enough, you may certainly have a team in each of those, um, in those locations. Yeah. But okay. If you're talking about every different 
country that you're serving, you can get to the point where, well, I, I have a team of five data scientists and, and ops folks, and I have to serve the entire country or the entire world rather, um, you know, it doesn't scale. But a flip side of that would be, okay, I want to deploy my models into say a science lab, into a research lab. And there may be a rack of servers there. You have plenty of compute capacity. And if I'm publishing a model that runs on a microscope or some other instrument, I'd like to see that observability data back, but the researchers may well be saying, there's no way you're sending data about my research off to your cloud. That's my IP. <laughs> we have strict security requirements here. So again, it has to stay in that. The same thing would be true of an advanced factory or semiconductor fab or any of these types of places where you have really valuable IP and you have third-party models coming in and you really want to be able to run those models, but the data scientists would like to get the data back too. So that's an interesting challenge that that we run into is, okay, so how do you enable that? This also makes me think you have like these decentralized teams all around the place. My question would be, how do you consolidate the information or the learnings from, let's say, one of the teams in one place to another place? Because let's say you're training a model on a data for like a particular country or a particular company where you can't take the data out. Let's say you're serving some other client on a very similar use case in certain other country. How do you consolidate that information from this place to that? Or do you or can you? It's a tough problem. I, I tend to think, yes, we can. It's something where, that I'm actively working on that all of us are, are working on right now. And there's parallels to how do you train data if you can't bring it out. So there's techniques for federated learning where you can push the algorithms out to, it may be the edge, it may be data center edge type of cases, do a partial training, bring the weights or the other information back, do some reconciliation, and you do multiple round trips of that. So you can now train the model without having to aggregate all of the data back to a central location. So what I'm really interested in is how do you do the equivalent of a federated observability where you want to do drift analysis, you, we want to do anomaly detection and all of this. So can you push these algorithms out to the edge, say into the research lab, statistically summarize the data and bring those summaries back such that you're not revealing any specific IP, but in enough detail where you could look at multiple deployments of this model and aggregate the results. So now you can do things like it, it, even something like um, cameras in a retail store or traffic cameras or something. And you can look at the performance of the model in aggregate. You could zoom in and say, let me just say, take this one intersection or this one store, or even let me look at this one camera. Well, this one camera, the, the classification rate dropped by 20%. Why? Oh, well, somebody stuck a Valentine's display up and there's a red light shining into the camera and uh -huh. it can't see anything now. <laughs> so you can start doing all of these neat analytics if you can bring it, 
at least some of the results back. And, and sometimes they may not be sensitive. You can bring everything back. Sometimes you don't have the bandwidth, so you bring back samples of it. Sometimes you statistically summarize it and, and bring the results back. But so you can keep learning and optimizing and then push out improved models. I've got a, a real funny one from when we had a meetup in San Francisco, and I cannot for the life of me remember the company that one of these guys that I talked to was working for, but the whole concept was around cameras being in a store like your typical supermarket, and then you get charged when you pick things up, and it automatically gets sent to your your account. The bill, as you leave, it gets sent to your account, and then you know, all right, cool, I picked up these five items, and you don't have to do any checkout, nothing like that. And I just remember one of the adversarial attacks that happened was people would put their coat jacket above their chest or like out over the line of sight to whatever they were picking up. And then they would pick something up so that the camera never detected that they actually <laughs> got it. And then they would just put it into their uh, pocket and then leave. So he had to figure out how to properly defend against that. And I think it was something along the lines of checking to make sure if none of the uh, the stock had been depleted also. And so that is another one of those common things where you would like to see what exactly is going on and why are we losing money if we are. And But the main question, coming back to uh, the conversation at hand, <laughs> what I was thinking about when you were talking about this is you're doing all of this retroactively or can you do it also in real time and just have a little bit more a little bit larger of a window with that real time window that we talk about like it's still batch but it's very very fast <laughs> batch well you can certainly do it with streaming so you can do it near real time but yeah the limitation is one do you have a network connection big enough to send it back so can you get the images back or can you get whatever the inference inputs are and the results and then the other issue is unless you have ground truth data, which you probably don't because if you had ground truth results, you wouldn't need an inference model. You just know the answer. So then the observability is based on how does it compare to prior baselines and you're looking at a, at a statistical distribution and you can say, well, my classification rate of shoppers in line or of cars or cats versus dogs in my images has dropped or has shifted. And then you can say, well, now there's something I need to go investigate. But it would that sort of case would be harder to pick up. What you'd probably pick up is I'm, I have shoppers going through and they're buying less, or we I have some who are buying very little, and now I'm seeing a deviation in what people pay for versus what my inventory says. Uh -huh. And now you need to dig in and say, what on earth is going on? Oh, I get it. Okay. So <laughs> you watch a few hours of footage. Or... Yeah. And you start to see the patterns. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or how many people did something and they, well, they didn't pick something up. Wait a minute. Is that right? That was a lot of people who picked stuff up and, and didn't actually put it in their cart. Oh, they put it in their coat. <laughs> yeah. That's a cool attack, by the way. 
<laughs> yeah, it is. Of course, you're gonna you got to figure that every which way it can be hacked, people are gonna try. Yes, and the answer can't be we'll just put more cameras so you can see it from all the different angles because then no. your costs just go up and it's not worth it, right? You work, but they're coming from something which is basically a few GB, which is Raspberry to like a couple of CPU servers. When you have such varied devices and such varied levels of the devices that you're working with, how do you maintain statistical heterogeneity of data in these federated networks? Or is everything being collected on the same kind of device and then being compiled together? Oh, so that's, an, that's a very interesting question. Uh, it depends a lot on the application. Uh, in my experience, usually the variation is across applications. So you may be deploying a given model on something like Raspberry Pi class hardware. You're probably using similar hardware for that model across the fleet of them. But then you may have a different application where you're doing video processing and it's running on a large x86 processor with a GPU and that application now needs to be deployed there for that that level of processing. But that means that the ops teams have to then deal with it. So, you know, again, it's going to depend on the application, but you're bringing back the standard sort of metrics of CPU time, uh, memory usage, and, and so on, plus you're bringing back maybe the full observability stream, maybe you're sampling 1% or some fraction of a percent of it, um, maybe even want to adjust that observability in specific cases where you see something starting to go wonky and you say, well, you know, let's up that to 10% and, and let's get a few more samples for this particular model. Here's the queen of MLOps.org, and this is your daily dose of MLOps. Well, if you are that serious about the MLOps, you have to immerse yourself in the MLOps content. The best way to do it is to subscribe to the MLOps Community Podcast. All great people are here on this podcast. So, good luck and keep learning. So, speaking of the ops teams and this whole way that you're bringing it about when it comes to architecture of ML on the edge or ML ops at the edge, whatever you want to call it, how do things differ? Because I can only imagine it's a lot more complicated. Yes. So particularly for the ops folks, <laughs> because now of course you're dealing with uh, limited network connectivity. Certainly some cases you have no network connectivity, but in that case you're baking the model, the software, everything in, and it's in a firmware update and it's just leave it alone. Um, and that's great for some applications. But ML models, AI models are different beasts in software. They're really a function of the data they were trained on. And we're asking these models to tease out some very subtle patterns in the data. So there's a lot of background noise and a relatively small signal. And sometimes those patterns are going to be very consistent over time. 
Uh, if you're running a model detecting some aspect of a jet engine, they've characterized that jet engine uh, every which way, and it's going to be pretty consistent. But if you're talking about teasing out patterns of behavior for humans and traffic in all sort of the real world, those patterns shift over time. And sometimes the background patterns that you're trying to discriminate change over time. So the models have to be very dynamic. So one of the interesting aspects to me for Edge is we already want to do this in cloud deployment. We want to be able to deploy the model, continue to monitor it, redeploy and keep updating so we can optimize the behavior and keep it performing. So how do we do that at the edge, which means how do we enable relatively rapid updates of the models, not necessarily with the software, but how do we push those out there? And then how do we bring the data back so that the data scientists on the team can analyze the models and understand if they're still performing and know whether to do that retraining. Um, and it's interesting because there's actually a lot of parallels to software in that, um, you know, old DVD players, they're not connected to the internet. They're, you've never updated the software. The inputs are fixed, set of buttons, the remote control, the, the disks, and that's about it. But as soon as you take software and stick it on the internet, you have all of these different changing patterns, some of them malicious, and those malicious attacks are changing over time, and you'd better yeah. have a very dynamic method of updating your software because you will be getting hammered from different ways, um, and it's probably not completely robust. And, and models are the same, whether it's just natural changing patterns of cell phone use on a cell phone tower or actually malicious attacks where people are discovering new ways of you know, grabbing something off the shelf and, and walking out of the store. Or yeah, turning on your toaster that's hooked up to the internet and or turning on your whole <laughs> yeah. as smart home as I saw, I think, in one use case where somebody went on vacation for a weekend and then they came back and their whole smart home was taken over by by somebody and can't remember the exact specifics of that story, but it was something around those lines. So I can totally see that. And it leads me to the next question is how are you looking at specifically like there's the adversarial attacks or there's attacking the machine learning models themselves, but then how are you looking at security in these edge cases to make sure that not only is the model doing everything that it should be doing, but then taking it from the ops perspective and making sure that everything is going as it should be going. So, yeah, so security is really fascinating to me. Um, I don't dig into that very much. From my perspective, it's deploy the models and try to get the data back. But then, of course, there's the piece of how do you get the data back securely? Um, it That's an interesting challenge because it's going to... Yeah. It depends a lot on the application of how exposed is it to the internet? Is it completely exposed, like it's designed to interact with it? Or is it something where you could set up uh, something like an overlay network where all of the software systems on that edge device can only see one target back at the cloud infrastructure and oh, you just route nice. all of the data back there and you don't let anything else into the firewall? Um, can people play with it? You know, if it's something like a voice assistant in my house, it's not getting attacked too much, except, you know, my kid's banging on it. 
or if something gets into my internal network. But if it's something out, you know, in a store where people can start now poking at the the Wi-Fi connection and everything, you have to deal with a, a, a whole lot more headaches. One of the challenges there too is if you have models running on an edge device from different sources, say you have a scientific instrument and the operator changes a setting, we want to be able to swap to a different model. But if those models come from different sources, because we're starting to see that as a trend where you don't want to make the model, you want to open it up to competition, well, now you also have to make sure that what the model is observing and sending back home had better go back to its actual home and not somebody else, <laughs> right? You don't, you know, if my company makes a model, I don't want my observability data going to my competitor for them to see. So now you end up having to bake into the models. Well, what is my, what is my return destination? Where, what am I allowed to send back and where do I send that and do it securely? There is one thing that I wanted to ask real fast about baking or not baking. We had uh, about a year ago, Luke Marsden on the MLOps community meetup, and he talked about the pros and cons between baking models into your containers. Sounds like just about everything you're doing, you're baking them in. We can, but actually my preference is to not bake them in. It would be more, you leave the container running and when you need, you hot swap the model out and you let the software keep going because the last thing you want to do is disturb the software system that's running on it. Um, you know, one of the things I've looked a lot at is 5G cell towers. So you, they'll have something like um, the, the one type of towers that we've been looking at have a 10 millisecond timing loop where they're optimizing some, a, some aspect of how the, the spectrum is divided up among the different clients on the network. And you may have a model that's optimizing for ultra low latency, or you may want to have a model optimizing for streaming throughput for video types of things. And you want to be able to swap those models in relatively short time frame, but you don't want to disturb the timing loop and tear down the whole container and redeploy and everything. You just want to here switch, switch. I'm optimizing for streaming now and just keep on running. Interesting. Let's, let's come back to your work at Walshrew. I'll tell you a bit because I, that's something also I'm so, so fascinated by. Uh, which is you are working with a lot of use cases from cybersecurity to IoT to real estate to manufacturing to edtech. And it's like, that is a lot of grit or that is a lot of bread that you are working in. Are the observability challenges same in all of these fields or how are they different? Especially like when you're working on these models. Yeah, so so good question because you're right. We, we it, I love it because I get to touch a lot of different sort of use cases, and actually, it reminds me of the old uh, ads for BASF. We don't make whatever; we make it better. Um, they're a, I know chemicals company, I believe. Uh, so, my job here, my job at Wallaroo, and Waller's job in general is not to teach the domain to any company. The data scientists know their real estate domain or they know oil exploration or they know any of these sort of aspects. Um, our job is to provide the plumbing is what our CEO says. 
uh, we're, we're plumbers. The idea is how do we enable the ops folks and the, the data scientists to deliver more value by automating the lower level, the, the redundant pieces? How do we take this model and deploy it in a production form that has load balancing, that has um, replication and so on, it's highly available, or so it's packaged up and it can deploy in a relatively small piece of resources. And then how do we provide the tools that let the experts in their domain understand how the model's performing? So then what it comes down to is the, the big difference is, are you talking about structured data? You know, if you're talking about um, predicting a house price or something, yeah, and then that's I bring that up because that's a demo that's that we have in the pre-edition, and you can see this uh, the house price predictions for the Boston area, and the trend over time, and you can see shifts in it, um, and it's a rather old model. You know, it's laughable. It's like, well, if it's over a million dollars for a house, who would pay a million dollars for a house in Boston? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to find a house less than a million dollars in the Boston area, I suspect. But um, that's a structured continuous variable. Uh, if you're looking at classifiers, you can do the same thing. And whether the classification is images looking at vehicles or images looking at shoppers or defects in parts coming off of the assembly line, you can end up, the experts in that can come up with the criteria that they're interested in monitoring for their domain. And same thing with NLP models. You can look at, well, what are the results here? What are my metrics that I care about? And now let's monitor that for drift. And let's look for anomalies on a case-by-case -case basis. Is that what you're looking for, Abby? Those are a lot of fields. How do you build expertise or does it divide up expertise as well? Also, when it comes to hiring different people, because what happens is, let's say you're working on NLP challenges. Over a period of time, you tend to have this edge over other companies that are working in NLP, let's say, because you're also doing subsequent research work, because you also know these are the few patterns that I see coming up over and over again. And let's invest a little bit more research work so we can solve these problems. Um, my question was more so because you would have very different kinds of data with everything. So how do you build that expertise and how do you gain that kind of like market edge as well when you're working in so many things? We certainly end up having to build up a lot of expertise in these different types of domains. And really, you know, as we get customers, we talk with them and we really try to understand what they're working on and what their problems are. Um, but there's actually a fair amount of commonality when you talk about the different classes of models, whether you're talking about structured data coming from sensors on equipment, or it could even be latitude and longitude of a house versus images versus NLP models. And then it's a matter of, okay, we, under, we understand the basics of NLP and processing there. So now let's really dig in and understand the specific cases of what you're trying to do. Are you looking at um, understanding sentiment analysis in brokerage reports from the SEC? Or are you looking at tweets trying to understand what an adversary is doing 
um, based on social media, the, the stuff like that. And because you're right, there, there's so many different details, but I consider that one of the, the best parts of the job is being able to work with experts in their domain. They understand what they're looking for. And it's, let me help you understand your challenges when it comes to deploying models and then getting the data back and, and how do you want to see this? So one thing that is awesome, and you do not have to say any names that you don't want to say, but I just want to hear about one of the last things that you were working on, because as I mentioned, this whole field is completely foreign to me. So maybe you can take us through, like, what was one of the last challenges you had to overcome and tell us a story about it? Yeah, so I, I can't say any names, but one of the projects I've been working on for, you know, most of the time I've been here is how do you integrate into a 5G cell system? You have, so I, I, so I had, didn't really know anything about telecoms in terms of this, but a 5G tower has a lot of software. It used to be this was dedicated hardware. Hardware's gotten so fast, you can virtualize this as lots of different software systems. So we're talking big, big hardware, multiple 25 gigabit network links, and you can virtualize a lot of the optimization of this. So now you have really tight, like 10 millisecond type control loops, which means wow. your ML inference budget is maybe a millisecond. And when you start thinking about that in terms of speed of light, you can't go very far. It has to be pretty close to the tower. Um, so, okay, we need to turn around inference times and how do you get the software architecture right? Because just a simple HTTP connection, if you reestablish a connection each time, is often on the order of five to seven milliseconds. So, uh -huh. well, that's not going to work. You need to keep the connection open. You, you, how do you get the data in and out quickly? You might be able to do JSON and parse it. You might have to use a binary format. You know, we, these are solved problems. We know how to do that. And then there's the thing of how do you get that much data back and aggregate it because you think about how many towers are in a metro area. Well, it can be thousands. So oh. how do you flood all the these data back and continue monitoring that? And th this is this is an ongoing discussion. This is not solved. Um, <laughs> but it, the use cases are fascinating because you have the really tight timing optimizations, and then there's also higher level optimizations where they're trying to optimize on second or a couple second um, time period across multiple cell sites and how do you shut down some of the capacity to optimize power because I didn't realize it, but a big cost of cell towers is how much power they consume. So if you don't need the oh, bandwidth, wow. can you reduce power usage there? Wow. Man, this is awesome. That is so, so many challenging problems there. Wow. Yeah. And certainly this is not something that I or, you know, the whole team are even going to solve. This is lots of people in the industry, but yeah. um, it, as an engineer and just a nerd in general, understanding the complexity of what it takes to have a phone where I can hand it to my kids and say, fine, you can watch Netflix for a little bit. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> so killer. Wow. Yeah. So speaking of all these different use cases and we've gone over them but i'm just thinking about some in my head and there are those telecom use cases you also have like i remember when i was back again working with dot science we were talking to a company that was doing stuff on the edge because they were a shipping company 
And so I feel like there's probably a lot of use cases around shipping and just being out at sea and not having connections. Then you have uh, any kind of, I, I would imagine like the, uh, what are they? The We were talking about healthcare and I bet there's stuff when it comes to like pacemakers that I don't know if they're actually doing machine learning on the pacemaker. I would doubt it. Maybe I have no clue. Again, I'm very much a novice in this uh, field and that's why I'm glad I'm learning from you. But then like just science R&D, you have manufacturing is probably another huge, huge one. Um, preventative maintenance. Did I miss any there? Um, you, you hit a lot of big ones. It's almost unlimited. I and mean, you can even, you go into say oil exploration or mining or something. And oh, wow, yeah. the sort of things that they're trying to optimize and, you know, I, if only barely touched on it in terms of when they're asking about how do you do, how, you know, can we do this? Can you manage it? 5G is a big aspect there where you can do a 5G private deployment. So now you can cover large areas and give something like Wi-Fi connectivity where Wi-Fi would be harder to spread out over many square miles. Um, or even if you're talking about, you know, there's semi-autonomous warehouses where you have robots driving around and you just uh, need yeah. to optimize how they're, they're running. You don't want to put too much compute power on each robot. That's expensive. So, you know, they get into the trade-offs of what do you want to run locally and what do you send back over Wi-Fi or 5G or something like that to a central server in terms of coordinating the robots and then you have local control also for accident avoidance. So it feels like there's a few different vectors that you're looking at when you're deploying on the edge. And one is how much compute you can actually have on the edge. And the other is that speed at which you can get the data, the connectivity. Are there other things? And how do you like weigh those trade-offs? Just as you were saying about the the warehouse, I remember when we spoke with uh, someone from Okado Technologies and they have that exact same thing. Like they're looking at a gigantic warehouse and they're using computer vision with their different uh, their different pickers is what they are. They, so it's like those games that you play in, in Carnival. You know, they have their... <laughs> There are different hands that they go and pick things out of in the warehouse. And so when you're looking at these different vectors, how do you look at the trade-offs and recognize what is the optimal way of doing it? So, yeah, that's really interesting. There, there's so many different vectors you can optimize because it, if you're battery powered, it can even be how much power is my inference going to take if oh, I run yeah. it locally versus if I use a network connection to transmit the data off, and it could be something like, well, if it's if the data are tiny, that's a little bit of power to transmit it, so send it off. If it's an image and I'm doing a little bit of filtering, it makes a lot more sense to filter it locally and send off only a small fraction of the images that actually need to be processed. Um, but then you also end up with all of the networking trade-offs of well, for one would be just bandwidth. If you know video is heavy, it takes a lot of data. So if I'm monitoring cameras in a retail store, that model may not be profitable. The economics may not work if I have to provision enough bandwidth to stream it all the way to my cloud provider. So I need to bring the compute closer. And then there's also the latency. If it if there's a timing loop, if there's tight 
requirements, whether it's user experience or for a control system, can I get the signal there and back? And can I get it there and back with enough nines of reliability that the system stays up? Well, no, I can't, you know, I, I can't go 200 miles away. I don't have enough time bandwidth um, or it's not reliable enough. So let, let me bring the compute closer to the problem. There's so many different vectors there to, to optimize and where, how do you make the economics work? Where compute is really cheap in a data center, but if it's too far away, so I'll bring it closer. Can I afford to do that? Can I afford to go stick some expensive servers in a warehouse where I don't have IT staff to manage them? And, you know, now my support costs are higher there. So does that still make sense? So it really feels like all of these challenges are super specific to this type of AI at the edge, right? Like these questions we take for granted when we're just grabbing something off of AWS and we know that we have infinite power, infinite compute, infinite storage, all of these different challenges that we we would never encounter if we were working at the edge. It's fascinating to me. Oh, it is. It's We have a little bit of that. We've all gotten the cloud bill or our manager's gotten the <laughs> cloud bill and come down and said, um, what you, you know, do? You need to fix yeah. this. <laughs> right? What have you done? <laughs> so, so cloud is great. You can scale until it, you can't afford it. But but yeah, then you you have all these other trade-offs like, well, I can't scale. I have this much, you know, this much compute and this much memory, and all of the services have to share that. Uh, figure out how to get it done. I love the fact that you talked about economics of operations because as we are gathering more data by the minute. It is one of the most important questions and maybe even for people who have their data on the cloud because not all of the data is relevant or stuff maybe it stops being relevant after a point in time. Um, how do you lower the cost of deploying these models? And how do we think about how much data do we keep on our premise? Good question. We struggle with this, the same question. So. A lot of my job is how do we lower the cost of deployment? And cost of deployment is everything from how much bandwidth does it take to get an optimi uh, a new version of a model out? If it's a whole container, that may be gigabytes, potentially, if, if it's a bloated container. That's a lot of transmit time. If you can get it down to just deploy a small model bundle, that can be megabytes or tens of megabytes, perhaps. So... But really, to me, the, the biggest cost of deploying a model is typically the human, the, the ops talent, the data science talent. Huh. And how do you make those people more efficient so that they're really generating as much value as possible and not having to mess around with, you know, with all the little details? And I tend to think of that as the same thing that we saw with Kubernetes and all the other data center optimization tools is when you're able to take your team and suddenly, suddenly over a couple of years, be able to manage 10x more servers, people didn't say, well, great, I'm going to slash my ops staff. They said, give me 10x more servers. Or really what they said was, wow, now suddenly a bunch of my applications are cost effective when I go from $20 an hour to $2 an hour to $0.20 cents an hour. 
So give me 30x more servers, go hire people. This is awesome. And, and we're seeing the same thing with um, ML in general. And I think we'll see it with Edge where you started off with huge industries like high frequency trading on Wall Street and online advertising where they could hire PhDs by the bus load and do everything full custom. And if it costs $100 million, that's a good deal. Most companies aren't going to be able to justify that. So if you can get it down to a million dollars to deploy a model, you open up more applications. If you get it down to $10,000 a model to be able to, for a year to be able to deploy it, run it, optimize it, you know, grow and nurture this model in your farm of models, you know, now this team is increasing their abilities. They're generating more value for the organization. You know, now you have even more models that people are going to want to deploy. Oh, I love that. That is so true with the idea of getting the ops cost down and then you're not all of a sudden saying, okay, great, now we don't need our ops team because our costs are so low. <laughs> we can subsidize it some other way. It's like, no, now we want more of this because we are seeing that ROI and we are seeing the potential. And I think that's crucial. Like being able to tie the machine learning projects that you have and the products that come out of your your team that deal with machine learning tying that back to revenue is something that we hear time and time again when it comes to this podcast like so many people have said it and actually funny enough somebody wrote a paper on it about how many times we rant and rave about it <laughs> in this podcast specifically <laughs> because it is so important it is like one of those it's paramount and a lot of times we can get a little bit distracted and sidetracked with the shiny new toys. But if you're not driving revenue at the end of the day, you're you're just playing around. It's like, it's not actually a useful toy. Absolutely. At the end of the day, somebody, you have to pay the salary somehow. There has to be a reason yeah. to keep it around. It, it can be fun if you're not doing it, but then you get to the, the point, you're like, wait a minute, this isn't going to last forever, is it? Yeah, it just, it turns into like how much of a cost center are these 70 data scientists that are on payroll mm -hmm. and how can you justify keeping them if you aren't actually, they're not pulling their weight or even it's not only the data scientists, it can be the data engineers, the data, uh, anybody or the machine learning engineers, whoever it is, if all of these projects that are coming out of the team that is supposed to be delivering some machine learning capabilities are not actually hitting the mark, you've got problems. So I know I'm preaching in the choir and Jason, <laughs> it's been great talking to you, man. In case anyone has not already seen Wallaroo, I would highly recommend they check it out and they get to see your skills in action with that platform. We'll leave all of the information to everything you need to know about Wallaroo in the description. And that's about it for us. Thank you so much. I'm a fan of the pod. This has been awesome. I enjoyed it. Hi, this is Mihail Eric. I'm the founder of Pamitan Data Innovation and Confetti AI. And this is a quick public service announcement. If you're tired of having nightmares about the machine learning models you have in production, then I encourage you to subscribe to the MLOps Community Podcast. It's where all the cool MLOps kids hang out and learn how to tame their ML models.